Well, greetings. Good morning, church family. Uh, we're back in Acts today. Aren't you ready? Right? Incidentally, we are right in the middle of our exposition of the book of Acts. And I think that's uh, vitally important, especially considering the content that we will see today. Now, some of you uh, feel like there are not any other books of the Bible that the preacher is going to ever preach. And some of you probably feel like that uh, I'm going to die myself preaching on the book of Acts. And others of you are thinking, uh, I'm going to die before the preacher finishes preaching the book of Acts. So. But this chapter is so vitally important. Can I get a little more microphone, Mitch? Just a little. I feel like I'm, I need to be over the hump a little bit today from, for vocal reasons. And uh, singing this morning, I'm telling you folks, an evidence that you're filled with the Spirit of God is that you will, speak, you will speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I was doing my best to speak to Eric this morning, right? I really was. You're, you're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns. It's an evidence of the fact that you are filled with the Spirit of God. So whether you can carry a tune or not, uh, you should be singing to the glory of the Lord because God intends for us to sing for His glory. Well, this chapter, chapter 15 is called the Jerusalem Council. Now, I want to remind you that there are occasions when it is right to fight. Let that sink in. There are occasions when it is right to fight. There are other occasions when fighting is wrong. And we realize this. As Christians, we find that there are times we have to take a stand over issues regarding our faith and at other times, we must by all means avoid quarreling. But many Christians want to fight about everything. And you know this is true, of course, in Baptist life. And in any church, we'll fight over the location of the piano. Should it be on the right or left when the pastor's looking out? Or when you're looking in, should it be on your left or right? What about the piano? We'll argue about worship service times. We'll argue about uh, the way the worship service should unfold. We'll argue about the style of music. You ever been guilty of that one? You know, lying's a sin. And I can tell that some of you are lying by looking at me, right? We'll argue at times about what's most appropriate for a Christian kid. Is it homeschool or public school? We'll argue about all these kinds of things. On the other hand, we've got a culture of tolerance that we live in that has produced a type of Christian who thinks Christ's followers should never have a heated debate over serious theological matters. So we got one group that wants to fight over everything, while the other group won't stand up for anything. It's kind of the world that we live in. Acts 15 shows that there are times that require serious theological debate. And there are times that require us to take a stand for Christ and for the gospel. And that's what we have in this particular text. We should always go to battle and take the gloves off when it comes to the gospel of Jesus and the good news. How a person gets saved really matters. More amens than that we should have, right? How a person gets saved really matters. And they, the early apostles, the disciples, had to contend 
for what we call the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning that salvation is exclusive. It's only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ that one can be saved. So that's exactly what's going on in this particular passage of Scripture. So in the meeting, the gospel is going to be attacked, and then the gospel is going to be defended. Grace will be affirmed unanimously as the only means of salvation, and the body of Christ will be strengthened, and even unity will be maintained charitably, the way it was handled. I think that's a good lesson for churches, right? When we deal with a theological issue, we handle it, we stick to the Word, but we're charitable to everyone. Why? So that we maintain the unity in the body. Paul will devote an entire book of the Bible in discussion, pretty much, of what took place in this council. And it's called the book of Galatians. He's going to spend an entire book dealing with the issues dealt with here and the outcome of what was decided. So what I'm going to do is break it down for you in smaller chunks. Aren't you excited about that? Not as large, but I do want to read the first 11 verses, but I'm only going to preach the first five verses this morning. Are you ready for the reading of the Word? Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised... According to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. How a person gets saved really matters, doesn't it? Verse 2, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, what's that mean? And debate, means this is pretty heated, wasn't small, it's a big deal. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the gospel of grace, thus is your title, is under attack. Again, if you review the book of Galatians, you'll find out what these Judaizers actually were teaching and how Paul had to stand against them. And if you read Galatians, you'll find out that this issue was an issue of eternal importance. Just flip over there for a moment. I've got Galatians marked, so I'm going to get there before you do. But just flip over. Let me read just a couple of things to you to get to whet your appetite about how serious of an issue this was. Chapter 1, beginning verse, in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ... And are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. In other words, there's not another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be anathematized. Whew. That's strong, isn't it? As I say again, 
If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Very quickly, chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Chapter 5, verse 12. This really highlights how serious this was to Paul. Listen to the word. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Y'all see this is a serious issue, right? And Paul is having to forthrightly engage them with the truth of the word of God. Now, Paul and Barnabas had just finished their first, what's it called? Missionary journey. They returned back to their sending church. Scholars believe they had traveled over 900 miles in the first missionary journey. And it took probably a little over a year. And they returned to the church of Antioch. And these beloved uh, disciples and apostles were coming back to the church that first sent them out. And the joy of coming back to your sending church and giving that kind of of information about what God was doing through them. And we read that. Remember, the Apostle Paul said how God opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. What an awesome understanding of how sovereign God is in His grace and how He works. But suddenly something happens when they're having their wonderful time with the church family. Something, something happens. And that something is the fact that trouble is brewing. Some Pharisees have come among the brethren. I don't know if they had their Bibles and scrolls tucked under their arm or not, but they began to have their own Bible study sessions and they began to teach the people that you're not, basically that Jesus is not enough alone, but you have to become a Jew if you're going to be a Christian. That's basically what's going on in the passage. Now there's been a lot of question about how Acts 15 actually fits with Galatians chapter 2. Now, flip back to Galatians. You're going to have to do some flipping in between those books. But what, what's going on here? Is Acts 15 exactly what Paul is addressing in Galatians 2? And I would tell you that they're two different occasions. Chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now chapter 11, just stay where you are, listen to chapter 11. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine. So the disciples returned determined in their ability to send forth relief, and they sent Barnabas and Saul. So I believe that that's when Paul says, by revelation. What was the revelation? That there was a famine in Jerusalem. Y'all with me? So they sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem, and that particular meeting mentioned here is a meeting in private, not before a council. Some of you look strange. You're like, what's up with the preacher? Okay. Chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas came... Who is Cephas? Yes, Peter. I opposed him to his face. Whew. He stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here we have scholars who say, well, some say chapter 15 of Acts is the exact same thing or occasion that Paul is dealing with in Galatians chapter 2. However, there are way too many discrepancies between Galatians 2 and what you're going to read in Acts chapter 15. As a matter of fact, in Acts 15, the key verse is found in verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Who said that? Peter says that. Well, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul is confronting Peter face to face. And he's doing so privately. I don't think Peter would have made this kind of explanation of the gospel of grace if if Paul was confronting him to his face at that moment. Y'all with me? So I spend that time because it's vitally important for us to understand the chronology of the Scripture. So the basic purpose of discussing it, again, is chronology. How does this work? Well, the church of Antioch is enjoying thriving times and advancement of the gospel. Peter comes down in chapter 11 and he's enjoying this great fellowship among Gentile believers. You know what he's doing? He's eating some ham with the Gentiles. Seriously, he is eating table food with the Gentiles. Then all of a sudden, some men come down from Jerusalem. They're sent by James, and they see Peter in the homes of Gentiles. And after Peter attends church, his breath smells like he's been eating bacon. And these Pharisees know that. Remember, one of the critical things about this particular sect that supposedly believed the gospel that Peter is dealing with and Paul is dealing with, they're people who believe, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's only the Jewish Messiah. Okay? They've got that in their mind. And so Peter, they think, is acting like this. He is erasing the lines and the boundaries, and he's trampling underfoot all that God gave us in the Old Testament. You know, we don't know how to relate to that because we're not, we were not born in this culture. But this is what their thought process was. So, I don't believe Peter ever backed back out on the fact that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I think what Peter does is he is faced by this opposition from the Jerusalem brethren and the Pharisees. And they, they point those long bony fingers at him. And they're asking him, you, you mean you're going to eat the ham from Murphy's Grocery? Right? I mean, are you really going to do this? I mean, all we've ever known is the fact that you can't eat the pig. There are certain things you can't eat and can't eat, can and can't eat. And at this point, Peter's going to cave in. And in the church body, old Gentile George comes up to Peter. And he says to Peter, Would you come over after service today and have lunch with us again? My wife and I have prepared the best pork chops you will have ever eaten. And Peter says, probably best if I skip that meal tonight. And you know, they're persistent. What about next week? 
And what about the next week? And Peter begins to back up on what real fellowship around the table is all about. So Paul will confront Peter to his face. So you want the short story long? Well, it it takes place in Galatians chapter 2. It's a private meeting when Paul goes up, according to Acts 11, and he confronts him privately, and he's got Peter and Barnabas lined back up. Okay? So when you get to the Jerusalem council, everybody's on the same page. They're understanding where they are in all of this. In verse 1, the men come down from Judea. They're carrying their Bibles. They've got their insight. Uh, They're supposed to be respected. Right? They're respected scholars because they're Pharisees. And they come in and they're teaching heresy. You cannot be saved without circumcision and obeying the full Mosaic legislation. They're brand new believers. The Antioch Christians have probably been believers for maybe two years. And... These people who were supposed to have a grasp of the Scriptures, who have been completed Jews, are coming down. And they're not teaching correctly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Can you imagine how the new believers were confused? I mean, just think about them for a moment. They could easily say, I thought I was justified by grace through faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ. I thought all my sins had been forgiven by Christ. I thought I was already a child of God. Now you tell me I've got to submit my life to Mosaic legislation this question would have shaken them have you ever been shaken as a new believer with things that you heard especially if it was false doctrine I mean your Jehovah Witnesses and your Mormons and and many different cults prey off of Southern Baptists do you know that the dominant uh, the largest denomination in the world yes it's SBC but we also lose more to cultic practices than any denomination Because they don't know what we believe. And when somebody comes along and says it's Jesus plus something else, we start listening to that kind of stuff. And we go off the wrong way. And here you have new Gentile believers with respected Jewish teachers coming down to teach them that you can't be saved unless... dot, 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 dot. You fill it in. That's what they're teaching. You think they discuss among themselves that we didn't hear this from Paul. We didn't hear this... From Barnabas. They never mentioned it. In addition to circumcision, you need to put the pork away. Full Moses legislation. And you need to honor Shabbat, and their understanding Saturday, from sunup to sundown. you got to do those things in order to be saved. So two issues emerge in the church. First, how could good Jewish Christians fellowship with uncircumcised, pork-eating Gentile Christians? How could that work? Well, this is a religious and cultural issue that's being spoken of here. It's a huge issue. What did it take for Peter to get it right? It took an ark-like sheet descending from heaven in a vision for Peter to understand that all those things were clean to eat. But the most important thing was he was to go to a home of a Gentile, an unclean person, and give that individual the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ alone through faith, in order for Cornelius to be saved. It took that. Jesus had already told Peter, it's not what comes into a man that defiles him, but what... Yes. And then he goes on to say, God declared all things clean at that moment. It took Peter a long time to get this. Why? Because it was so culturally ingrained in him that you couldn't do certain things, couldn't eat certain things, and had to observe certain things ceremonially. 
So it's a huge issue. So, those things were against Peter's religious scruples for a long, long time. And he began to buckle under the pressure uh, of those religious teachers. You know, when you think about how culturally and racially this was motivated on both sides, I don't think, it's, I don't think you could even compare. I think it was potentially as bad as it would have been in the 1960s in Alabama when it comes to African Americans attending a, a white church. I mean, we don't think we can think a little bit about that, but this, is, this was what's going on here. It was an explosive issue. So the guys from Jerusalem come down and take this first major issue to another level. It's one thing to talk about table fellowship. How can good Jewish people, believers, have table fellowship with good Gentile Christian believers? That's one issue. But they take it to another level. And here's the other level. How could Gentiles legitimately claim covenant relationship with Yahweh God without undergoing the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision, and without obeying Mosaic legislation? That's what, come, that's what it comes down to. So the bigger question of fellowship, which is a, a culturally different issue, this one centers around what it means to be in the covenant of God. I.e., what does it mean to be a child of God? Meaning, what does it mean to be saved? So this church at Antioch was an international uh, place of the expansion of the gospel of Christ. You understand that the gospel went to the ends of the earth, not through Jerusalem, but from Antioch. And it was a Gentile church. Okay? So keep that in your mind. Paul and Barnabas will take off the gloves at this point for the sake of the gospel. They're going to do that. Why? Because it's that vitally important. And, in, and back in Acts chapter 15, verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed went back up to Jerusalem. Why were they doing that? To find out if that was the feeling from the mother church in Jerusalem. What do they really believe up there? I mean, here's this sect of Pharisees saying it's Jesus plus this and this. But what does the church in Jerusalem have to say about this? So Paul and Barnabas uh, corrected uh, earlier Peter and Barnabas. And people are on the same page. And the Bible says no little dissension and no little debate. It was a huge controversy. This moves from table fellowship to the heart of what it means to be saved. And Paul and Barnabas will oppose them. And again, keep in mind that Galatians 1 is the background of this. When he says, If anyone preaches another gospel other than the only gospel that exists, let him be anathematized. Let him be accursed. So I think it's safe to say that Paul saw these Pharisee leaders as lost people. I think Luke calls them believing with a tense, a phrase, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they knew Christ. It could mean that they believed in the Messiah, but they didn't believe internally. So, uh, even, in, even in John 2, the Bible says that they believed in Him, but Jesus did not commit Himself to them. What a statement. What a statement. So, Paul, I think, would say, if, if they hold to this rope and line of reasoning that it's Jesus plus anything, then they're lost. And so Paul says, let him be accursed. He pronounced this to them. Ladies and gentlemen, 
There's some strong language used in chapter 5 of Galatians in this regard. Chapter 5, 1 through 4. So I think this is the last time I'm going to have you turn. But it's good for you to see it. Chapter 5, 1 through 4. For freedom Christ has set us free. Did we sing something about that today? Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. That is some of the strongest language in the Bible regarding what it means to put your faith in any act to save your soul rather than the grace of Jesus Christ. If you go after any other means of being saved, then you have fallen, from, which has nothing to do with losing your salvation. What it means is you've gone down the wrong road to even get salvation. Salvation is not possible in any other act other than free and sovereign grace given from God Almighty. And so he gives this. He makes it clear to them. The gospel of God is at stake. And when the gospel is at stake, Paul was fiercely serious. That's the way he was when the gospel was at stake. So, folks, this was not a matter of when the rapture was going to take place. We like to argue about that. Are you post-trib? Do you think the rapture is going to take place, and then we go through the tribulation, people go through the tribulation. Is it mid-tribulation where we rapture in the middle? Is it post-tribulation we rapture after? I mean, that's debatable things, and the Bible is not unequivocally clear on when the rapture will take place, howbeit there will be a rapture. The fact is, this was huge. I would say uh, this is way more important than even the issue of the mode of baptism. We argue about that nowadays, don't we? Should you be sprinkled, a little bit of water thrown on the top? Should you be immersed or dunked? Folks, this issue in this text is of eternal significance. This is the issue of salvation. Paul says, if you receive circumcision, you are cut off from Christ. What does that mean? If you receive circumcision as your, modus opera, as your means of salvation, then you've been cut off from Christ. And I say, put anything else in there that you want to put in there, and you're cut off from Christ. Unless it's Jesus alone that saves us. So, Paul says, if you receive circumcision, you are cut off from Christ. If you receive circumcision, then you are required to keep every single bit of the law. If you try to be justified by works, Paul says, you've fallen from grace. And so, the church of Antioch, they send Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem. They're the representatives there. And... They actually go down through it, and as they move that way, they're also rejoicing with churches they started on the way. Don't you love that? And they stop by, and they start talking about what God has done in those churches. By the way, can I make a little rabbit chase? Would you be okay with that? Incidentally, if water baptism is clearly understood as a one-for-one replacement of circumcision as the sign of the covenant, then why did these Jews who were supposedly under the apostolic teaching of the early apostles to Jerusalem insist on circumcision for baptized Gentiles? 
Man, that's a bombshell against people who think that you have to be baptized to be saved. Baptism is not even mentioned in this text. If baptism was a one-for-one covenant obligation, just like circumcision was, then why didn't they say they haven't been baptized? They had been, they, they had been under apostolic teaching, but they run right back to the circumcision issue of the Old Covenant and ask about circumcision. Furthermore, why didn't the Jerusalem Council respond to the Pharisees when they give out their verdict by pointing out that the Gentiles had already received a sign of the covenant, which is, if you believe baptism saves you, baptism. Instead, the message of the Jerusalem Council was freedom from circumcision, not because baptism has replaced it, because, but because an individual is saved by grace through faith alone, not by water baptism. Did y'all enjoy that? Okay. Paul and Barnabas pack up for the trip, and as they're going on the trip again, they give missionary reports to all they see. Uh, you notice in the text, they don't bring up the controversy. In that all, you know, churches love to go from one church to another and talk about what the other church is doing. Or if there's a problem in this church, did you hear about that church? What's going on over there? They're falling apart over there. You know, Paul doesn't stop at these churches and say, back up in Antioch, we're fighting over how you get saved. That's not what he did. You know, sometimes we need to close our mouth and it shows a lot of wisdom, right? I read some kind of statement the other day that it's better to keep your mouth closed and be thought a fool than to open it up and remove all doubt. But here Paul doesn't get into the dynamics of that. These people are removed from that. They don't need to be brought into a controversy about how you're saved because Paul knew how they were saved. By grace through faith. So they make their way up and the Bible says that they're warmly received, uh, which they should be. And the epic event of what's called the Jerusalem Council which you understand there will be a lot of councils that will follow this model through the years. The Council of Nicaea is just one of them. The Council of Chalcedon. There's going to be many, many of those councils, but none like this one. This is an inspired council, okay, given to us in the Word of God. And so it is the Church of Jerusalem putting their stamp of approval on the fact of the universal gospel of Jesus Christ reaching to the ends of the earth and becoming universal in its application. And that's what happens in this text. They're warmly received. They got glowing reports. Gentiles were converted to the covenant of God by grace through faith alone. As they are giving this missionary report, the sect of the Pharisees was also there. And note, it's the same message. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so, again, same kind of of assessment of what they believe. Uh, this by, so they got a glowing report and then they speak. You mean you didn't call, didn't do an altar call for circumcision? Can y'all imagine that? I mean, what if we preach like that today? It's time for an invitation. Come on down for your circumcision. Right? Son, I'd be going out the back. Right? No question about it. But that's, that's kind of what happens. Paul is saying you're saved by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And they're saying, well, what about circumcision? I mean, I know you've given your invitation, but circumcision. What about 
The food laws. Are they eating what they're supposed to eat? Are they not eating what they're supposed to eat? Paul, did you get this right? And they're withstanding him. Folks, you understand this goes to the very nerve of what it means to be saved. When you're adding to and you're saying you must do this and that. I wonder how many of us, if we hear that, oh, I know, I know you got Jesus, that's good, but you're missing something in your faith. You're missing something in your Christian life. I'm not sure you got it all. I wonder how many of us would be discerning enough to look that person in the face and say, what you are sharing with me is an assault against the gospel of free grace. Hmm. I mean, I've had to do that before, especially to Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. No, what, what did you just say? I have to do what to get saved? I asked one Mormon at Natalie's house the weekend her dad died uh, up at her mom's house. Some Mormons came to the door and I said, hey, I got five minutes to live. I got a knife stuck in my back. I got five minutes to live. How can I be saved? Well, you got to do this, uh, this. What? Wait a minute. I've got a knife in my back. I've got five minutes. We've got a God who can save, right? Yes, we do. How can I be saved? Well, you got to do this. You got to do celestial underwear. You got to do this. You got to do this. Really? I got a knife in my back. They can't answer that question. And then I said, what about the thief on the cross? He had less than five, seconds, five minutes to live. Probably so. How was he saved? By grace through faith. No addition. No subtraction. Jesus only saves. We need to have the guts to look someone in the face charitably and say to them, that's an assault against the free and sovereign grace of Jesus Christ to save sinners. The gospel of the saving exclusivity of Jesus by the grace of Christ will always be disputed. And it's disputed today, folks. Everywhere you go, it's, Jesus is not enough. As a matter of fact, Jesus is not even the only way. There's many ways in people's understanding. But the Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man will come to the Father except through me. So many also adhere and say they believe Jesus is the only way. But in fact, it's very easy for them to get sidetracked and begin to think that it's Jesus plus something else. If we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Let me give you some gospel math today. You want some math lessons? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Y'all got the gospel math right? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. The work of Jesus Christ is absolutely, totally sufficient alone to save sinners. We can't earn righteousness. We simply receive it by faith alone. The gospel is not do this and earn God's favor. It is Jesus paid it all. Put your trust in Jesus only. So today if you're trusting in any other thing for salvation, then you're like that little hamster on the wheel. You're just running and running and running but you never get anywhere. And you never will if you're trusting in works to save you. It is Jesus Christ alone that saves. Robert Lowry got it right when he wrote the old hymn, Nothing But the Blood. Man, I scanned through that hymn today, and I got excited sitting in my office. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Listen to this one. For my pardon, this I see. You're getting it right. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. 
This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing it. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Say it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I'm going to go all the way to heaven with that belief. What are you trusting for salvation? It's that important. We're going to have fun when we get to verse 6 and we get down to verse 11 and we hear Peter's incredible exaltation of Christ alone for salvation. But today, think about that. Are you that hamster on that wheel? And all of life is about religiosity. And what can I do next in order to gain God's favor? And you're like that, you know, the human default mode when it comes to salvation is works. We want to we go back to that. What can I do to get it, folks? Salvation is a free gift from God. The wages of sin is... But the gift of God, right, is eternal life. There's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. It's a name that's given. Not work for us. Receive. Let's pray. Father, again, we stand in awe of your great grace that you would love us. Lord, to be a recipient of grace doesn't bring about us being proud. It brings about awesome humility. That you would take notice of us seeing that we're strangers. That you would impress upon us your love and your personhood, in order to draw us into yourself, that you would quicken our hearts and regenerate our minds so that we can believe. And then in essence, the fruit of that is faith. Lord, the fruit of a regenerate heart is faith. Only you can make us alive by grace through faith. Father, would you do that today? For that one individual who's trusting in so many things in order to attain favor or salvation, let them come to the end of themselves today And say, Lord Jesus, you alone are God. And you alone came down to save sinners. You alone bore the penalty that I deserved. You alone obeyed the law of God perfectly. We never could. And you took that perfect body to the tree of Calvary, having obeyed the law of God every jot and tittle. And you died in our place and on our behalf so that we might have a righteousness given to us as a gift. Not earned, but given as a gift And so that we might have the right standing before the Father. And that standing is in Jesus' righteousness alone. Father, we thank you for that. What an awesome plan of redemption. May you save a soul this morning. And for Christians, Lord, give us the the incredible audacity, fortitude, to say that anything other than what the Bible teaches is an affront to Jesus Christ. It's an affront to the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.